Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second in a series of four events that Labour Lists are holding with the UK in a Changing Europe. My name's Arnon Menon. I run the UK in a Changing Europe, and we have a fantastic panel here to discuss the state of the Labour Party, essentially a year and a little bit after the last election. Each of our panellists is going to make some remarks for about five to seven minutes. We might have a little conversation amongst ourselves, but... I want to spend as much time as possible dealing with your questions. So on the Slido, do send in your questions. And actually, to make my job easier, if you don't mind, vote for the question you want to hear posed to the panellists. If you, because if you, the more people who vote for a question, the higher up my list it goes, and it just makes it easier for me to select. So our panellists today, in the order in which they're going to speak, they should all be known to you. Sir John Curtis, Professor Sir John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde, who's a senior fellow with the UK in a changing Europe. Lucy Powell, Shadow Minister for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and MP for Man Management, Manchester Central. Belle Ribeiro Addy, who's the MP for Streatham, who won her seat in that last election in 2019. And finally, Sienna Rogers, the editor of Labour List. So, John, are you ready to kick us off? Yes, indeed. Um, what I want to do is to present you with two alternative interpretations as to what was Labour's difficulty back in uh, December of last year, and then to examine in the light of those two interpretations, what the party may or may not have achieved during the course of the last year or so. And then because we were asked to do this, I'll just say something very, very briefly about given where we are at, what are the prospects for the party in the bonanza of elections that is now due to take place in May of next year. Uh, my essential premise behind all this, you won't be surprised this given we're doing this under the UK and Changing Europe banner, is that essentially the 2019 election was about Brexit. Why do I say that? Well, if you actually take the current views of both, not necessarily how they voted in 2016, but take their, their views as of December of last year, 83% of people who, had, who were Remain supporters voted for one of the parties that said uh, in, in some way or another that there should be another referendum. And 83% of those people who voted Leave voted for one of the two parties, the uh, three parties, the Conservatives, the Brexit Party or UKIP, that were arguing in favour of Brexit. So the truth is that this was an election where basically at least the distribution of support between the pro-Brexit parties and the pro-second referendum parties, if I can use that shorthand, was one that was very, very heavily reflective of the current views of the electorate on the issue of whether or not the United Kingdom should be leaving the UK in the first place. In the wake of that, there are, I think, two interpretations that have come out. Um, one is I think probably more prevalent inside the party than the other, uh, but let's just outline both of them. Interpretation number one is that, of course, Labour support crashed amongst those who, uh, who had been previously voting for the party, but had voted leave in 2016, um, falling from something like 25 to 30% down to 15% or even less. So you know, a, a, a drop of a double digit drop of support well above uh, the drop that the, the party was suffering nationally. 
could take the seats that the party had won in 2017 but lost in 2019. On average, there'd been a 58% lead vote. And perhaps the most difficult thing of all for the party is that in the wake of this, and largely as a consequence of this, the party could no longer claim either to be more popular amongst working class voters than middle class voters. And indeed, actually, the Conservative Party uh, was uh, more successful amongst working class voters than the Labour Party. So a party that regards itself uh, as its mission to, to represent uh, working class Britain. This perhaps was the sorest and most difficult wound of all. And it all of this, of course, symbolised in the loss of the so-called Red Wall seats. So if you take this interpretation, you essentially say, well, the problem is we lost the Leave vote. We lost our core base amongst working class voters. We need to reconnect with it. Um, and perhaps one of the things that you hope for as a part of that strategy is that Brexit indeed will be off the agenda by 2024 and that you'll be able to reclaim some of these voters because one of the things we do know about them is that while they may be pro-Brexit, they're not necessarily uh, uh, folk who buy into some of the more economically liberal interpretations of what the Brexit project is meant to be about. So the answer, this interpretation basically says we need to try to repair the damage of 2019. But here is interpretation number two, that the essential problem um, in the election is that the party did not win enough Remain voters. Why did the Conservatives win the election? Not because the election demonstrated that a majority of people wish to leave the European Union. Why the Conservatives won? Because they persuaded 75% of those who voted leave to vote for the party whereas the uh, Labour Party was getting support of only around 45 to 50%, according to the various sources. That was down um, uh, uh, on even the figure, the 53% the party got in 2017. So it wasn't as big a loss as it was as compared uh, amongst Leave voters, but still the party was trailing badly the Conservative Party in its ability to appeal to that half of Britain to which it seemed to be capable of appealing. Now, you know, why did this happen? Well, much of the damage was, of course, inflicted by the Liberal Democrats, who won around 21% of the Remain vote, plus in Scotland, the SNP. Um, and of course, it's worth remembering that you only have to go back to, what, eight weeks before the election, into September, and the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party were still neck and neck with each other amongst Remain voters. The Liberal Democrats have done an awful lot of damage back in May in the European elections. And while the Labour Party recovered some of the ground it had lost amongst Remain voters while making very little progress amongst Leave voters during the uh, election campaign, it still failed, failed to get the Le Remain vote uh, behind us. And it's worth bearing in mind that this is certainly not something that is irrelevant to the party's ability to win back Red Wall seats. Because one of the things that is Often forgotten is that even if you look at those seats that voted Labour in 2017 but voted Leave in 2016, something like two-thirds of those people who had voted for Labour in 2017 had actually voted Remain. So in other words, even in Leave voting Britain, Labour's vote is disproportionately a Remain vote albeit undoubtedly the central problem the party faced in a lot of these seats is that that one third of vote that was leave was indeed the, the bit that departed from it. 
But winning back red wall seats is not going to be achieved, according to this interpretation, simply by appealing to leave voters because there aren't enough of them willing to vote Labour. In meanwhile, of course, we also have to bear in mind that the other disaster the Labour Party have suffered in recent years is the disaster of 2015 in Scotland. And in Scotland, of course, the electorate is overwhelmingly pro-Remain. And it is the, uh, the SNP vote now is also very strongly a pro-Remain electorate. So according to this interpretation, basically you say, well, you're never going to compete with the Conservatives for the Leave vote, but therefore Labour should focus on the Remain vote, which after all already represents around 80% of its support. Um, and that, that is the way in which the party might, it basically needs to be as effective at winning Remain voters as the Conservatives were in 2019 in winning over Leave voters. So, Against those two uh, alternative and admittedly deliberately polarized interpretations, what seems to have happened during the course of the last year? Well, I think the first thing one could say is I think probably I would characterize the party's position on Brexit uh, during the course of the last year is to avoid it as much as possible. It was only last Wednesday, I think for the first time that Keir Starmer actually raised uh, Brexit doing prime PMQs when it might be thought that actually there were plenty of previous occasions on which this might be an issue that you might want, which you might want to tackle the government. Uh, the party's been much happier focusing on coronavirus and on claims that the government has been um, incompetent. And this has certainly enabled the party to make some progress. It's now roughly even, Stevens, with the Conservatives in terms of national vote share. It's been there more in that position more or less since, since September. Um, and certainly it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, an election now probably would not give enough seats for the Conservatives to have an overall majority, probably not enough seats for it to be able to form another administration. Yes, the Labour Party would be a top of the Democrats in the SNP, and one can guess what the price might be, but actually it probably would be very difficult for the Conservatives to remain in office. But certainly, you know, the reactions certainly of Labour voters to how they've been doing on Brexit, very interesting figure in Deborah Matheson's latest Brexit diary, only 18% of Labour voters think that the Labour Party has had a positive impact on Brexit during the course of the last 12 months. Now, has this progress been made? Well, in part, it's been made by the fact that the Democrat vote's gone down quite heavily. That's most overwhelmingly a Remain vote. Although some of that has also gone back to the Conservatives. Some uh, Conservative uh, Remainers of 2017, in which suits the Democrats, has switched back to Conservatives. And that's one of the reasons why it looks as though the Conservative vote amongst Remain voters, such as it was, has largely held up. But whereas the, the, uh, the, the Conservatives undoubtedly have suffered because of coronavirus, and that that drop has actually been sharpest for the Conservatives amongst Leave voters. So some of that Leave coalition has been peeled away because of their concern about the way in which the government has been dealing with things. But it's not clear how much of that lost Leave vote has gone to the Labour Party. Certainly, if you, for example, take some of the recent polling, it suggests that maybe 5% of the 2019 Conservative vote has gone to Labour, but 15% of it has gone to don't know. Um, and that, you know, the polling is somewhat contradictory, but that probably Labour has been making progress amongst both Remain and Leave voters on the confidence issue, but that it's still essentially a party that, whose vote is still very heavily structured by Brexit. Um, so um, I would therefore, in a sense, and, and meanwhile, what's certainly also clear from all the recent polling 
is that what the last year has not done has enabled the party to reconnect with its working class base. If anything, Labour's progress in the last 12 months seems to have been stronger amongst middle class voters than it has been amongst working class voters, and it's still trailing the Conservatives amongst uh, working class voters. So, um, in a sense, ask me to characterise this, I would say Labour really, I think, have been muddling through on Brexit in the last 12 months. They've been ho hoping, hoping to avoid it as much as possible. That's been enough to get itself in a position where it might be capable of forming minority government, um, but certainly not to a position where it looks like they're capable of winning an overall majority. The prospects for next year, well, uh, number one, of course, is Scotland, and Scotland at the moment looks like a, a, a disaster. Current levels of support, 17% on the constituency vote. Uh, the SNP look as though they're heading for an overall majority, and that will therefore mean there will be a pressure for another referendum. It's admittedly seemingly holding its own in Wales, but that won't necessarily be enough for a majority. Meanwhile, in England, what's the, what the, most of the seats that are being defended in the local elections were last fought in 2016. They're going to be far more than those in the ones from 2017. What happened in 2016? Well, actually, Conservative and Labour were pretty much neck and neck in the polls. They were pretty much neck and neck in the local elections. So it is not clear that at the moment, at least, as far as English local elections are concerned, is that Labour is going to make significant progress but maybe, maybe, certainly, I mean, the London morality should be comfortable, but I guess certainly one of the things it ought to be thinking about, and you know, some reasonable prospect is beginning to win some of those elected moralities, some of which perhaps many people were surprised that it failed to win uh, when they were originally contested back in 2016. But on that at the moment, at least, I certainly don't think the party's done and made enough progress for there to be any guarantee. John, thank you very much. For those who haven't seen it, I'd point you towards some rather interesting uh, results from the British election study, uh, which has been written up by Jane Green and uh, Jeff Evans in Terralia. And one of the things they find was, I think a quarter of the new Tory voters from December of last year have now switched back, not to Labour, but to undecided. Yeah. So there are lots of votes up to grab. It's, it's there in the opinion polls as well, um, which is what I was, what I was quoting, but yeah. Both interesting. Things. Lucy, over to you. Thank you, Anand, and thank you to um, UK and Changing Europe and Labour List for, for organising this. And apologies for highly unusually, I'm actually in Parliament today, so I'm relying on the parliamentary Wi-Fi instead of having my glorious Manchester Christmas tree behind me, which is what I normally have for Zooms these days when I do it from Manchester. Um, so apologies for that. Um, yeah, I think I'm here really more as um, one of the co uh, authors and the commissioners of the Labour Together review into the 2019 election, which Sienna was also um, a commissioner of. So I just wanted to just give a, a quick summary of that. We published that report, you may remember, about um, six months ago or so. Um, and I just want to say a little bit about the findings of that and what it tells us for the future and, and how we're progressing with that, if that's OK. So the um, report that we did with Labour Together, it's a 150-page report. You know, it's got lots of graphs and details and work in there. We, we used, um, we had exclusive access to the British election study and many other uh, sources, as well as commissioning our own um, 
bespoke polling work and, and other work to, to really look at the 2019 election and the long-term trends that led to it. We had a, a commission uh, made up of people from all across uh, the party, um, from trade unions, local government, um, uh, myself, Ed Miliband, uh, Shabana Mahmood, former um, MP Joe Platt, uh, as well as James Medway, Ellie May O'Hagan, Sienna, um, Marcus Roberts and others uh, were, were on that, that commission. And we had submissions from 12,000 members and from everyone involved in the Labour Party from progress to momentum. So we, we really felt like it was a, a proper sort of piece of, of, of work. And the idea behind it was not to point a finger at blame on the past, but to chart a, a path uh, back uh, for, for Labour. So the, the three sort of key things that, that we found, I suppose, in that report was this was an historic defeat for Labour. There's no question about that if you look in any... Um, historical uh, context. And in this particular election, it was a combination of Brexit uh, leadership and a, and a package of policies taken together that weren't seen as believable or, or credible. And the point I think uh, John has made, you, you know, you cannot inter, you cannot disconnect really the issues of, of leadership and Brexit. You know, they're very closely uh, associated in that election. We lost all voters everywhere. As John has said, we uh, we lost um, leave voters, remain voters. And in fact, in net terms, we lost more leave voters than we did uh, remain voters in, in uh, net uh, terms. And the Conservatives were very successful in the 2019 election um, in mobilising previous non-voters, something that we in the Labour Party think we're particularly good at. But they did. They mobilised two million previous non-voters um, in, in, in the previous elections, and they were particularly uh, leave-minded working class uh, voters. The second thing we found was that it had been a long time coming. The Red Wall had been crumbling essentially for 20 years uh, or more, and it was a growing uh, trend to do with um, alienation with the politics, deindustrialization, um, you know, and some of these sort of what have become known as the kind of culture uh, war uh, issues, which, of course, you know, were catalyzed in that particular election, but it had been a long time coming. And as John has said, that applies to um, Scotland, too, where obviously we, we, we went further back instead of making um, any gains. And that historic voter coalition that the Labour Party has historically represented, um, that the, the kind of working class communities uh, in our towns, many of whom voted uh, leave uh, previously with the sort of urban metropolitan uh, voter, that historic voter coalition was distinctly um, fractured. And the third thing we found was that we now have a mountain to climb. You know, in any historical, in any historical context, to win outright um, the next election would be um, something that's never been achieved uh, before in, in electoral terms. Even be the largest party would take um, swings on a scale of the 1997 uh, general election. And if we don't make any gains in Scotland, you know, the impact that has on what we need to do in, in England and Wales is significant. So we have a real um, mountain to climb. One of the things we wanted to do with the review was to have a, a point of collective reconciliation for uh, members, activists, people across the party to really uh, come together and have a collective understanding of, of, of what went wrong or what, what happened and what we need to do um, 
to to get back into power. And I think we've 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 that that report and and the process following on has has led to that. I do think we now have a sort of better collective understanding about that. So what does it tell us about um, about the future? Because I think that's probably where there's less sort of shared um, understanding and, 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 and less consensus perhaps about the future. Well, the first thing we, we, we say in the report we found was that we can't take our current voter coalition for granted. Uh, people who did vote Labour in 2019, many of them have recently voted for other parties, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and others. Um, they're more febrile uh, voters in, in many ways. So we can't take them for granted. The second thing that we that we mustn't lose sight of and often gets um, lost in the in the conversation, especially when we're talking about leave and remain voters, is that we've got to um, uh, going forward, we, we've also got to have a political strategy that infuses and mobilizes young voters, younger voters, not necessarily young, but younger uh, voters, as we did very successfully in the 2017 um, election. Because the challenge isn't just about the breadth of our support, and I think we've seen this in the US elections recently as well, but it's also about the differential turnout and about our ability to mobilise and enthuse. And I think we can't lose sight of that challenge uh, as well. In addition to that, obviously, we need to reach back into the so-called red wall and have an offer and appeal um, to, to do that, whilst at the same time making some inroads uh, in in Scotland as well. And to do all of those things, not take our current voter coalition for granted, infuse and mobilise younger voters and appeal um, to red wall and Scottish voters. You know, this is a, a difficult um, uh, challenge it, and it's a very different electoral challenge to the one that we faced in, in the past. So we did do some work on, on, on this and I'll just briefly, um, quickly just say a little bit about that. We did a sort of people's panel where we brought together um, voters from leave minded voters from from towns, if you like, across the north with sort of more uh, remain minded uh, urban voters. And we asked them to form a coalition uh, government. And we, we did that with Deborah Matteson did that work for us. And it took took a, a day and a half sort of e exercise. And obviously that was done just at the beginning of, of coronavirus, just before coronavirus, the first um, not lockdown. And of course, the economic and health crisis that we're now in. I think has really exacerbated some of these issues. So what we found was that, that where, there are, um, where there is a basis for that building that broad political uh, coalition is that people want big change. They want real big economic change in their lives, but it has to be rooted in their place, in their community and their, and their family. That's something that really brings everybody together. And it has to be done with a leadership that is uh, credible and and authentic um, and, and that there's a lot more in the report about that if people want to to read it and I think you know Keir's shown that with his call care um, uh, exercise and so on that he's prepared to, to go out and listen to, to voters we had a few recommendations around the organization and, and political so the first is the electoral challenges of today are very different from those in the past people tend to sort of look deep into the past and think well 1997 what did we do then we just need to do the same now well it's very different the electoral map in 1983 couldn't be more different from the electoral map in 2019 and I compare those two years because we held roughly the same uh, number of seats it's a very uh, febrile more divided political context we have to inspire with a positive agenda we have to be the party that represents real change in the country but that has to be credible and believable and rooted 
we have to put voters and the communities that we want to seek and serve at the centre of everything we do, not as, a, as a, an afterthought. And our membership base doesn't actually reflect those voters and communities uh, very well. Um, and we need serious sort of culture change in the party as well, which starts with our campaigning being more relational and less transactional with community organising um, at its heart. And all these things are huge, big challenges, which will take a lot of time to do. Thanks, Anand. Thanks ever so much, Lucy. Can I just uh, say to the audience, if you can start voting, we've got so many questions. I can tell you now we're not going to get through uh, most of them. So if you can start voting on the questions you want me to pose to the panellists, then that will just help structure things uh, as we get to the Q&A in about 10 minutes time. Thank you. Belle, over to you. Thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Uh, a whole year on from the election, and it's, it's definitely a very different world now. And this is even before uh, the pandemic, which, which I'll of course come to. But I, I remember working as a staffer in Parliament um, when the Tories first uh, came into power, you could feel a shift in the air, but feeling that shift um, as an MP was something else because you walk into the chamber and you could literally feel the boldness in the room. And this is right from the very uh, first couple of, of sessions um, when, when we came back after the election, it was clear that, um, you know, the Tories were going to do uh, whatever they want, um, whenever they wanted to do it. And they felt that they had the ability to, to do that and that nothing was going to stop them. But in terms of why we lost the election, I think there are loads of different views um, as to why we lost. And when there's when there are that many views, um, it could be uh, some um, of a little bit of all of them. Um, people definitely say it was a Brexit election, and I, I take that on board, but I don't think it's as clear-cut um, a situation as perhaps it is for other parties. Uh, the Labour Party, if you remember, had the eight most Remain um, constituencies, and had MPs in the eight most Remain constituencies and eight most Leave constituencies in the country um, during the referendum. Um, my own constituency, I, I believe, was second only to Gibraltar, and uh, Gibraltar definitely probably has a very good reason for wanting to stay in the EU. So we were, we were split in that way um, in terms of a party, in terms of the representatives that we had, and that played out over the years. Now, um, I think that uh, looking at the analysis, it's clear that we lost a lot of, of um, Remain voters. Uh, the, the majority of Labour Party members were Remain, and the majority of um, Labour Party voters were Remain, as you heard John discuss earlier. So I, th I think we lost a lot of people because the messaging uh, was quite strong at that election. It was quite strong from the Tories in terms of getting Brexit done. And it was quite strong from the smaller parties in terms of saying, if you want to remain, you have to vote for us. And a lot of our voters jumped that way. Um, we also had to undergo an onslaught of completely unfair uh, media attacks. Um, and they were relentless. And their aim was clearly to, to gut Labour and turn the, the then leader into some sort of a bogeyman and, and, and media bombardment actually speak to people and they would say things um, and, and not necessarily be able to explain how they'd come to that conclusion, but it was, it was played at them through every step um, of the election. Now, some blamed our policies um, as being unbelievable. Again, this is something that um, starts off as a media line because I think about some of those uh, policies and I think about what it is in, in terms of human nature and the work that we're going to make um, 
them financially viable, and they were. Um, being quite a few of them um, myself and having developed some of them as a former advisor. Um, and I think about things such as uh, the idea that we need free uh, Wi-Fi and what we're going through at the moment and, and, and the platform we're on at the moment. And no one could have obviously predicted that the coronavirus uh, pandemic would happen. But I'm sure that following this and following what particular school children have faced in terms of being able to access their education, we may soon come with the out of this with a generation of young people that see that rural band uh, should be a right, not something that they have uh, to pay for. Now, all of those different things can be taken into account most definitely. Um, and, and we need to look towards that as we, as we look towards the next election. Now, I'm very much of, of the belief, and people say I'm far too optimistic that we're not gonna have to wait uh, the full five years for another general election. And people say to me, but Bell, you know, why would the why would the Tories just give up um, and, you know, allow an election to happen, especially if it's a period where they're quite unpopular? I mean, we've seen it happen before and I think it will make a massive difference. I think following the pandemic and what's happened, you can't have a situation where something like this happens and, and not face some sort of outcry from the country that would demand um, a, a renewing of a mandate in a particular leadership. So I, I, I hope um, that that's something that's happened. And... Um, I think part of the issue when we're looking towards these things um, in terms of gaining back the so-called red wall seats um, is that we keep talking about things such as the Labour heartlands. And I understand why we use that phrase, um, but the area in which I'm from um, and it is a Labour heartland. Yes, we may return um, a Labour member uh, all of the time, but that doesn't make us any less of a Labour heartland. We need to be talking about um, the commonalities between those areas and the areas actually that decided not to to return a Labour MP this time and look at and look at you know working to them both not playing a strategy which I think has caused us problems in the past and that um, probably most reflected in Scotland um, during the 2015 election now in Scotland they they you know they turned around and voted SNP in one election in a way in which people couldn't have imagined because uh, we'd always thought in Scotland they vote Labour and that's just it and, and the SNP aren't even that left uh, wing um, they were just what people believed um, the Labour Party should have been at that time in terms of policies and unfortunately when it came to assessing why we lost that that 2015 election instead of um, looking at the fact that we lost Scotland which is a significant number of seats that would obviously have made a massive difference we were looking um, at the populist idea at the time that we weren't tough enough on immigration and that saw um, you know failures moving in, into the next election because we were focusing in an area which wasn't really ourselves we were trying to outdo the Tories on messages like that as opposed to explaining to people um, against the populist view that migrants weren't actually uh, you know driving down wages and 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 and, and taking all of the resources for um, people in this country. Um, so we were leaning towards that when we'd have to be careful not to do that in the future, we can't out Tory the Tories. And um, I agree that we need to, whilst we're, 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 we're thinking about um, people in the red wall seats, uh, we need to really think about the fact that people don't vote for disunited parties, um, especially when times are uncertain. I, thought, I think we saw that in 2010 um, with, with Gordon Brown, uh, you know, people were having within the party we're having quite 
um, well, weren't being great in terms of um, supporting him when we came to the election. And actually, when it comes to an election, that's what we should be doing. We are a broad church in the Labour Party. Uh, we are different views. And, you know, what? I, I believe that we are the stronger for it. But when it comes to an election and you see the Conservatives do this um, and when it comes to election, everybody just gets down to it. Everybody unites around uh, the leader and everybody gets on with the course of making sure that their party gets uh, the most seats possible. That is that is the game at the time. And unfortunately, infighting, I believe, caused a lot of issues. Now, we're, we're in a good position now. Um, uh, and we, we should be in a better position, um, I believe, with the, with the situation in the country. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not one for thinking that how we uh, vote coming up on, uh, in, in, for the Brexit vote, should it come, should we have a deal which is looking increasingly unlikely, but who knows, will have as, as, as big uh, of an impact. Absolutely, at this stage, the Tories are going to be blamed for this. Um, they've shown that they don't understand how to negotiate. That might be because they've never actually had negotiators for all these years. Um, they think they're trying to assert their independence um, instead of uh, realising that getting a trade deal is actually about managing interdependence. Uh, and you'd think after four years, they could have they could have brushed up a bit on those negotiation skills and figured something out. Um, but they've been absolutely clear in what's going to in what's going to happen and. In the next few months, uh, because of the economic recession that's looming and because of what will happen with Brexit now, even if no deal, um, whatever form of deal uh, the government are able to achieve, both of these are going to be catastrophic for this country because of the stage in which we're at. And it's going to be a time where the Labour Party are going to have to show leadership, show that they have a way out of the crisis and, and, and rally the people uh, to, I think, push in, in whatever way they can um, for that election sooner um, than the five-year term we, we, we're expecting. And I'm very hopeful for that. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much, Belle. Uh, and last but not least, Sienna. Thank you. So I'm going to try and uh, whiz through my bit quite quickly so that we can get to questions. Um, so I'm going to talk about kind of what's most notable from my perspective, from a very Labourist perspective, is just the extent to which the Labour Party has changed internally. And I'm going to sort of cover what has happened over the last year. So obviously, at the start of April, Keir Starmer was elected leader and Angela Rayner deputy leader. Huge change. I mean, it was quite predictable from the beginning of that leadership contest. It seemed to be going that way. But obviously, that was a big moment in the Labour Party. And then we had the Labour Leaks report, as it's known among members, that arrived in April. And Keir Starmer had just done, you know, this campaign based on this party unity message, as well as professionalism and electability. And that's what he really concentrated on. And this report, which was about kind of the behaviour of, of party staff in, in HQ and the handling of anti-Semitism complaints, kind of touched on all of those issues that he was talking about in the contest, in the contest, in that internal contest. And it kind of was a major blow for all of those things. I mean, clearly it didn't demonstrate competence, the fact that, you know, the way in which it was leaked in that there was a massive data breach and there's going to be lots of legal action over that. Um, it wasn't professional, the way that the staffers behaved and the way that they talked about MPs and other staffers. It was clearly a very hyper-factional environment in HQ. That's what, you know, the, the kind of allegations of the report suggested and pointed towards, and it confirmed some of people's worst fears. So then we had a new general secretary in May, 
uh, Jenny Formby was out, David Evans was in, and he was clearly the leadership's pick. And I think this was the kind of first big sign that Keir Starmer is really willing to take risks with internal matters. He's actually been incredibly bold. He started out talking about how he really needed to be constructive with the government on things like coronavirus. But in terms of internal labor things, he's been pretty strident and pretty clear and not minced his words basically. And there was a big pushback from left-wing unions and this uh, general secretary appointment. All they knew about him really was this report from 1999 and it made them quite suspicious. And they, the left on the on the NEC, that's the Labour's ruling body, they backed a union man, Byron Taylor, but they were narrowly defeated. So this was a huge change in terms of the party machinery. This is when the leadership really took control of it. And then fast forward to uh, the EHRC report on Labour anti-Semitism. Obviously, the response to that was really designed to draw a clear line under Labour anti-Semitism and recognise just how much work there is to do in the party to tackle that. But the response was ultimately dominated by an incredibly messy affair about Jeremy Corbyn posting a statement, then being suspended from the party, and then being uh, let back in, in a process that was overseen by David Evans. Uh, and then, I mean, there are allegations about involving, you know, communication with the leader's office during that process. And then the leader obviously responded by continuing to withhold the whip. So obviously now there is this standoff in terms of whether Jeremy Corbyn should apologize and there is legal action being pursued by Jeremy Corbyn's team. So this, again, it's, it's another huge event in terms of Keir Starmer set out this mission to have party unity. And as Bell kind of referenced, everyone agrees in the Labour Party that this is absolutely key to winning the next election. But it just looks like there are absolutely huge challenges to that. I mean, at the moment, the former leader of the Labour Party, who was everyone was campaigning to be uh, prime minister, doesn't have the whip at the moment. So we can see that that clearly is not going to be a, a unified situation. Um, and in November, Keir Starmer got an NEC majority. So this is really crucial. Uh, Labour's ruling body kind of makes really key decisions. Things like Jeremy Corbyn, whether he was going to be automatically on the ballot paper or not. Uh, those are the kind of calls that the NEC makes. So it's, it's really important to the internal kind of governance and the implementation of real, the rule book in the Labour Party, which leads to these kind of big uh, calls that change the direction of the party. And it was kind of overlooked that in April, when Keir Starmer was elected, they also had these by-elections for the NEC, and three Corbyn sceptics got in at that point and were elected to the ruling body. And then the latest for elections were actually quite good for Corbynites for the Labour left in the party, in terms of they actually got a majority of member representative seats, but overall, because partly because there was a, a rule change, a voting system change, it was good for the leadership and they finally got a working majority on the NEC. Now Keir Starmer has achieved all of that, change of general secretary, change of NEC, all of these things incredibly quickly. I mean it took Jeremy Corbyn a lot longer to achieve these kind of things. So now we've seen Margaret Beckett take over as a chair of the NEC uh, rather than the vice chair who people had expected to take over and the officers group which is this core decision-making body within the NEC uh, really has changed hands with the new subcommittee chairs. So this is all quite niche, but basically it just shows the Labour Party has changed drastically internally over the last year. So that's a really big change from the last election. I think I would say that the, the kind of main points that I would say out of that, out of those changes are 
kind of relationships have really changed between the leadership and other stakeholders in the Labour Party. The Corbyn leadership was heavily dependent on the support of left-wing trade unions. Uh, Unite, for instance, got it out of that scrape in terms of um, uh, Labour Live, that festival. So uh, its NEC majority really was very dependent on, on Unite and other, other left-wing unions. Uh, obviously, its general secretary came from that union. Uh, the, the funding and the help with organising that those unions provided was really crucial to the leadership. Now, fast forward a year, Unite has cut its funding to Labour, uh, the Bakers Union is considering disaffiliating from the Labour Party, and Starmer has really focused on, in terms of donations, targeting high net worth individuals, and hasn't really given the impression that the leadership is incredibly bothered by the fact that Unite, for instance, has cut its affiliation funding. Um, and in terms of communication, that's the other thing I would say, apart from relationships, I think one of the notable things about this leadership is it's, it's shown a bit of a lack of interest in terms of talking to the party membership. I think that's not about the fact that it's messaging and it's decisions over policymaking aren't guided by members because I think that's a completely separate issue. But I think the leadership hasn't really explained to members what it's doing either and why it's going in the direction that it's going in. And I think there's kind of an unnecessary uh, communication vacuum there that, that should be filled. I think that's one of the things I would say in terms of going forward is that actually our survey with Servation, the Labour List Servation uh, survey of members showed again that actually Labour members want to be loyal to the leadership. It was actually quite encouraging for the leader's office if they, if they were gonna look into the detail, 55% said Labour is going in the right direction. 64% of these members said his approach to COVID, Keir Starmer's approach to COVID was good. They thought favorably of it, even though some people had criticized him for not being quite critical enough. Of course, that's changed over the last few months. So I think the leadership really wants to avoid developing a kind of defensive attitude that's creeping up as it did during the Corbyn leadership, really wants to avoid that because really party members are still absolutely desperate for Labour to win. That's why they chose Keir Starmer. They thought he was the most electable candidate. And I think they still want that. But obviously, party unity is a massive challenge and uh, communication and relationship building could really help with that. Thanks ever so much, Sienna. That was fascinating. Uh, we've got about just under 15 minutes left and I'm keen to get through the top few questions. What I'd suggest is that not everyone needs to answer every question. So if I put them to the panel, if just a couple of you want to come back with answers, we'll try and rattle through these. I also think as a populist at heart, we should like offer a mug or something to the person whose question is voted the most popular. And this week we have a tie between Ginny Smith and David Cooper. And Ginny Smith asks, will the Labour leadership consider a progressive alliance with other left of centre parties to vote the Tories out? Who wants to go for, oh, I suppose we should start with the MPs on that really, shouldn't we? Um, yeah, I don't mind quickly coming in on that. Um, it's funny, actually, I've done quite a few um, CLP meetings recently on the Labour Together review and about the election and how we can move forward. And um, and PR is always like one of the first questions that Labour member has asked me about in that context. And I think it sort of relates to this really as sort of PR progressive alliance question. Um, so let me just take the, the PR bit of that first, which is if we want to change the electoral system, which personally I would like to see happen, I always have had, we have to win under the current terms of the electoral system that we've got today in order to do that. So it's not it's not something that, that, that can happen first. So we first have to 
um, you know, be able to, to answer these challenges that we've been discussing today under the current system that we have. On this point about a progressive alliance, actually, the um, one of the findings of our Labour Together report uh, from some of the work that Data Practice did with us showed that the um, the progressive alliance that was formed in the 2019 election between the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, Plaid Cymru and um, the SNP and so on, actually cost Labour seats at that election. Um, so you know, we, we could have won more seats if that hadn't been the case. So it doesn't always work that way, I have to say. So, um, I, you know, I, I think none of this, well, the point I'm making is, Labour has to win and stand on its own two feet under the current system in order to change the way in which our democracy works. Um, and, and there's no getting around that. There's no quick fix for that. Belle, do you want to come in on this? Um, well, I would firstly agree with Lucy in the fact that we do have to, to change how our current system is, is first. It has major issues. I think about um, my own seat. Uh, where we had a member of parliament who went through a couple of changes of party um, and still was allowed to be the member of parliament uh, for the constituency. Now, I'm not so egotistical as to believe that when people went to vote for me in 2019, they were just voting for Bell because Bell's great. They were voting for the Labour Party. Uh, so we need to have uh, a situation in which that is respected. I re absolutely respect people's right to, to change, um, to hold their each political view that they like, um, unless of course it's fascist, um, and um, and join whichever party they like. But when you do, you have to be able to go back to the electorate, I think, and make clear that you are now standing as something else because that's not what they would have voted for. And there are a number of different things that we also have to look at. What's happening with voter registration at the moment is, is disenfranchising so many people. So yes, we absolutely need change in our voting system, but before that, there are some fundamental um, things that have to be dealt with in the way that our democracy works. Brilliant, thank you. As long as neither of the other two desperately want to come on on this, I was going to actually kick off the next one with John. I mean, this is the sort of big question for Labour, isn't it? Which is how do you attract red wall voters whilst maintain whilst retaining Southern progressive supporters at the same time? How does Labour well, do that? Is that it, it is the sixty-four thousand dollar question, and, and and I think you know. Um, it's really, really striking the difference between the way in which the Conservatives have handled Brexit and the way in which the Labour Party has handled Brexit. Boris Johnson basically decided to take a side on Brexit. He went for leave. Along the way, he was willing to cast aside or at least leave to their own devices significant sections of the Conservative coalition, including not least business, um, uh, etc. He basically chose a side and, uh, and also in doing that, succeeded in squashing the Brexit party and the rest is history. The Labour Party in contrast on Brexit ever really since 2016 has been trying to ride two horses. And now, of course, it may well be that the two horses will disappear between now and 2024, but you can't assume that. And I think you do have to ask yourself the question as to whether or not actually you need to learn something from the Conservatives. I think we can probably anticipate that if Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister 
2023 or 2024. We no longer know what the date of the election is going to be because the fixed term parliament act is going to go. Remember, Boris will now be able to choose the election at a time of his own choosing. Um, um, but I think you can anticipate, you know, Boris' pitch is going to be, vote for me, I delivered Brexit, blah, blah, blah. And is probably again going to choose a side. So the question, therefore, that faced the Labour Party is, it, does it think that second time around, not choosing a side is going to work, or whether or not it does need to change a side? Now, of course, in saying all that, the, the, the structural difference that faces the two parties is on, on the Brexit debate is at the end of the day, you know, UKIP and Brexit are relatively new phenomena without deep organisational roots. The problem that there is on the Remain side of the argument is that, you know, the SNP has certainly got deep organisational roots. And meanwhile, so also have the Democrats. I mean, how weak though they may be, they are still a party that's been in existence ever since, you know, uh, the mid-Victorian era, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not likely to disappear in the way that uh, the Brexit party and UKIP have both of them effectively, in many respects, disappeared. So, the, so there's no doubt that the position is more difficult. But you know, I do invite you to consider whether or not trying to ride two horses is necessarily the way to go, as opposed to actually choosing a side. But yes, in so doing, realizing the potential consequence of that is that the electorate of the Labour Party will look rather different from the electorate to which you have traditionally aspired but that's already happened to the Conservatives and the Conservatives are sitting very pretty, thank you very much at the moment, sitting on a very different electorate from the classic Conservative electorate. So I think you now this is the question that the Labour Party faces. Now, it may be Brexit disappears, maybe you can destroy the Tories on competence, et cetera, et cetera, all of that I take is true. But just be aware that so far at least, trying to ride two horses has frankly not worked. Just, I mean, stemming from that, and. Sienna, you go first on this if you want, is how important is the way that Labour votes on any Brexit deal if we get one? I mean, how, just how significant is that in sending a signal to actual and potential Labour voters? Well, can I just quickly come back with Sienna kicks in? I mean, I, mean, I, I mean, one of the things that's protected the Labour Party in the last 12 months has been the fact that the Liberal Democrats have also gone away and, uh, and, and put their tail behind them and think that Joe Swinson's position on Brexit was a disaster. They're wrong. There, there isn't any evidence to suggest the Liberal Democrats lost out because of Joe Swinson's stance on Brexit. What there is evidence on is that actually one of the things that helped the Labour Party to get Remain voters back is that quite a lot of folk who frankly weren't necessarily opposed to Joe Swinson's position on Brexit, but who were traditional Labour voters so, and having voted for the Democrats in May, wandered back towards the Labour Party. So traditional loyalty amongst the main voters, at least, worked in order to get to get to get the Democrats back. But I mean, certainly, I would worry. I mean, the SNP will almost undoubtedly vote against. So look forward to it being even more difficult to get votes in Scotland next May if you if you decide to vote for the deal and the SNP vote vote against it. They will go for you on that issue, hammer and tongs. Um, but the crucial question that I would want to know uh, before knowing what I was going to do as Labour Party is what the Liberal Democrats are going to do. If the Liberal Democrats decide to vote against the deal, just remember that they will be sending a signal to what is predominantly currently your electorate that they actually oppose Brexit, whereas you would have sent a different signal. Sienna? 
Yeah, I, I'll sort of answer briefly so that we can get onto another question as well before we end. Um, in terms of the general question, I think of, of you know, the kind of fractured voter coalition um, and bringing those voters together. I think the Labour Together review really had some interesting stuff to say here because as Lucy mentioned earlier, it did do work on what actually unites those groups of voters who seem so disparate and the kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And it really did talk about big economic change being the thing that unites those voters. That is what they share. That's what they want. And that has only become so much more important because of coronavirus. The economy is everything. So it's absolutely crucial that Labour is talking about the impact on, on businesses, on people, all of this stuff that's coming out of the COVID crisis, it's got to be the voice on those things. I think that is really the thing that can unite those voters. On Brexit and the kind of struggles, the tensions that John was talking about, I think we've got to remember that authenticity is absolutely key. I, you know, we can, it's really difficult when some people are looking at the Labour leadership having talked about, you know, a second Brexit referendum. And then they're talking about, oh, no, in Scotland, you, you said that that was going to be the once in a generation referendum. You can't do that again. You know, all of these kind of things, you've got to come at it from an authentic perspective and with an authentic voice. And I think that's what Labour needs to remember. You can look at polling, you can look at focus groups, but ultimately, Last year, the Tories read the mood of the country and the mood of the country right now is still get on with it. So I think Keir Starmer on that has actually read the mood of the country pretty well. It's just not true. <laughs> John disagrees. Can, 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 I, just brief, can I just briefly jump in on this? Can I just briefly... Yeah, jump in, Lucy. Yeah, just because, I mean, I totally respect John Curtis as a, as a, as a, as a leading sort of pollster, but... Um, you know, I'll, let me just give you a slightly different perspective on the mood of the country from from certainly from the north anyway. But I mean, I, th I think the critical point we've got to remember here is that we've left the European Union. We've now left the European Union. Um, and so the question is, you know, what is our vision of the country having left the European Union? Not like to go back and sort of replay that. But what what's really important learning about the Brexit debate is not particularly um, the Brexit question itself, which I think, you know, is now settled in that sense. The question is, what, what was it giving expression to? So people who voted Brexit and actually people who voted Remain, but then just wanted Brexit to sort of be done and dusted and, and got over, which is quite a large proportion of the of the population is what was it giving expression to? It was giving expression to the fact that people's voice wasn't being heard, that their communities had suffered um, many, many years of, of uh, lack of investment, of uh, loss of loss of identity, had been forgotten, and they weren't being um, listened to. And they felt the Labour Party that they'd voted for uh, routinely for many, many years wasn't listening to them either. We were seen as the establishment. In many communities in the last election, we were actually seen as the establishment. People were voting against Labour, even though we weren't in government. So they're the lessons we need to learn and translate them into that, that new world, which is a world in which we've now left the European Union. We're about to leave the transition uh, period. And I think you know, our, our demeanour is quite important here. Are we willing this whole thing to fail? Or are we willing... Our country to succeed and and that is the, the the challenge for the Labour Party I think over the coming years. Bill do you have the last word on this issue? I would just say it definitely is uh, 
difficult because one of the things that since people have accepted that we're not going to have uh, well we're, we're not going to stay in the EU because we have left the EU a lot of what Remainers have been asking for is to make sure that we don't have a no deal Brexit because that would be disastrous um, so it then becomes difficult to not vote for a deal however I, I, I'm going to have to agree with John about appearances and how it will seem because I think about a lot of the arguments around Brexit um, at the time and around the last general election, the so-called Brexit general election and the way in which people were, had felt. We were, again, already um, having have, had left the EU, but the smaller parties were able to put out a message which essentially said, even though we have left the EU, we are going to leave the EU and nothing's really going to change that. If you vote for us, we can remain. And people are still very, very much in that mindset. And I just don't think if we were to vote for a deal and and it's going to be a catastrophic deal because it's so late in the day and um, that it will be easy to defend that when we stand up in parliament which we will have to do in the months afterwards to say how badly it's all worked out brilliant i'm sorry to say we've run out of time i feel really bad because there were so 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 many questions i mean the lesson i've learned from this sienna is maybe we should make it a bit longer than an hour next time so we can uh, get through more questions but uh Thank, thank you all so much for sending your questions in. There's enough to have like 10 different events to talk all these things through. And I hope we can sort of pick up on some of these issues, particularly I think our next issue, our next uh, event with Labour List is going to be about uh, federalism, which will involve questions of devolution and the question of Scotland. So do come back to that because we can uh, revisit a lot of those questions then. But for the moment, thank you so much to all our panellists. I thought that was uh, absolutely fascinating. Martha at the UK and Changing Europe has sent me a message saying survey. So I have to say, please fill in the survey uh, before you go. I always forget to say that. So it's my fault that no one does, apparently. But please fill it in so we get some idea about what you think about these events. Have a very, very good Christmas to the extent that you can enjoy uh, it as normal. And we look forward to seeing you all again in the new year. Thank you all very, very much indeed. And thank you, particularly CNF, for working with us on this. All the best. Thank you very much. Take thank care. Bye-bye.